my name is Shane, and my pronouns are he, him, and I'm lucky enough to once again get to co-pilot Annika um, as they do loop-the-loops and death-defying spirals. Um, uh, it's lovely to be here. This, in case you missed the memo, is a continuation of last week, um, and we're going to do our best to uh, not repeat all of last week to catch everyone up as punishment for daring to miss a Sunday. I cannot believe it. Very un-Fitzroy North of you. Um, we are in the middle of a series called Another Story, and for those of you who've been around for a while, you know our series go on without end until one day they end, so strap yourself in. Um, this series is about looking at the way of Jesus as a wisdom tradition, um, about rituals and practices, um, about communal practices and um, private rituals and ways of being which live out a path of wisdom, um, which might lead to some kind of good life for everyone. And we are sitting with the way of Jesus as inviting us into another story that might clash with other stories of the world, um, whether they be uh, our own stories we've grown up with or stories of the world that surrounds us, we want to recognize that God in every moment is inviting us to new and loving possibilities that we might take part in. And we can't necessarily assume that any of our traditions are necessarily still responsive to the way of love. So we keep on re-looking at things and re viewing things and sometimes even diving back further into the archives of our tradition to find more loving ways of being and you know, trying to be responsive to the invitation of Jesus. And that alternate story might um, manifest itself in the way of Jesus and um, in the way that Jesus invites us um, to consider who God really favors, to consider what success looks like, to consider how we treat our enemies, or in the case of the last couple of weeks, who we understand God to be. And last week, we discussed the ways in which the early church understood Jesus through the lens of Sophia, um, embodying the person of Lady Wisdom in the Hebrew Bible. And if you want, if you missed that and want to dig into it, it'll be up on our podcast and you can hear Annika talk about the ways that the early church saw Jesus through the lens of Sophia. Um, as is often the case, whether it's describing God as a mother hen or the many-breasted one or as a woman in labor, the Bible stretches our imagination of God across and beyond the gender binary. For some of us, um, this is a bit scary, going, can we go there? Especially for those of us um, who weren't taught the ways in which the Bible did that. Um, I kind of described last week that for me, in my early days of grappling with an expansive view of God, I felt a bit like my brain was being stretched. Um, and I compared it to seeing my son um, being taken out of my wife in a caesarean. And lots of you asked for more details of that. So... <laughs> I've actually got a slideshow. <laughs> We're going to start right from conception and work our way through, so <laughs> strap yourself in. Um, but human language has always been grasping to describe what cannot be easily contained in language, and the divine cannot be easily con contained in language, and so we keep on grappling, we keep on stretching ourselves, and we keep on trying to notice where the divine is showing up. And in approaching Scripture this way, it's important that we honor our understanding and theirs 
that we don't conflate um, other people's understanding of terms and terminology um, and views of God as our own, but we recognize the overlaps and the differences. Um, we're using new language that has evolved from our understanding of ourselves and the world around us to describe facets of God that we see in our experience and recognize in Scripture. In this case, in this little series, we're talking about trans-Jesus. Because as Annika outlined last week, that's become a helpful word for many to name what they see in the practice of Jesus. We don't need to pretend that Jesus would have called himself trans, just as we don't need to pretend that Jesus would have said he was part of the Trinity. Because if you said to Jesus, wow, you're the third part of the Trinity, he would have said, I don't know what that term is. (laughs) And that's okay, because we're trying to grapple with new ways of seeing God that express to us, things that matter to us and things that we see in the story. Um, But we might suggest that what we see in the story of Jesus is that he embodied some of what is reflected in the trans experience and that he today would show solidarity with the trans community. And our our sense is that God is doing the work of disrupting, transcending and including all of the genders. And this is the work that Annika is going to invite us back into today. Thank you, Annika. I'll take microphone too, because there's a hierarchy. Oh, great. Wonderful. I have the power. (laughs) Um, Thank you. That was such a great intro. I feel like that sets the stage so well for what I want to do and talk about. And yeah, just to echo some of that, I don't understand what I'm doing as helping Jesus out of the closet. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I want to think about the ways in which imagining Jesus as a trans man functions positively for me and um, the invitation is for this community. Um, So I hope that this is helpful language, Um, but also if it's not, then um, that's negotiable. Like what I want to make clear is uh, what is negotiable is Theology, what isn't negotiable is how we treat our trans friends, siblings, um, people in this community. Uh, Yeah, so I wanted to pick up from where I left off last week um, around the idea of Jesus queering uh, gender norms. And um, I mentioned really briefly uh, the story of Jesus touching the unnamed bleeding woman in the text. Uh, And I wanted to kind of lean into that and make some connections, I guess, with a a story of mine um, to kind of go deeper into that lens of Jesus queering and broadening and pushing our understanding of uh, gender binaries and what is and isn't allowed. Uh, So the story goes really briefly that this woman has been bleeding for 12 years and... Um, as such is considered ritually unclean, uh, meaning that she wouldn't have been able to participate in temple life, in Jewish kind of customs, uh, or be touched by any non-family members. Uh, And in the text, Mark uh, specifies that she'd been swindled by many physicians and doctors claiming to be able to help her. Uh, And in her desperation and hoping for a cure, she touches Jesus' cloak as they're passing through a a crowd um, and feels instantly that she has been healed. And Jesus, feeling that power had gone out of him, stops and asks who had touched him. And everyone laughs a bit at 
the audacity of such a question in a pressing crowd. Um, but Jesus insists, and the woman eventually steps forward and owns up, trembling with fear. And he reassures her and says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And I think that story has always deeply resonated with me for a few reasons. That Jesus' first response to this woman is empathy and not disgust uh, by her bleeding, by her audacity, uh, by her reaching out for a touch. Um, Yeah, that though she is considered unclean, he does not mind touching her. And even more so, wants to know and be known by this woman. Uh, That even though he is not supposed to touch her, that it isn't allowed. uh, He is more interested in relationship with her and restoring her to her network of relationships than doing what he is supposed to or allowed to. Um, and in this kind of theme of uh, the Beatitudes, he's bringing her out from the margins and back into the centre of her own life. And I guess in my own life, to make some connections with that story, I've felt the tension between my instincts and what I've been allowed or encouraged to do. Um, My feminine qualities have always been encouraged, and I don't blame anyone for that. Um, Parents' jobs are to prepare their kids for the world that they grow up in, and my folks were doing exactly that. Um, But yeah, a couple of weeks ago, I got a haircut. This is that haircut. (laughs) Thank you. to channel a share moment. Can I get a little noise for the, for the back? No. Um, it feels a little dramatic to say that it's been the most gender-affirming thing that I've ever done, um, but I do think it is. Um, I've had a pretty rocky relationship with my hair and how it presents me to the world. Um, it felt like whatever style of hair I had, it's never felt me. Uh, whether that was uh, my long curly hair or a buzz cut or a regrettable stint with dreadlocks. I was always in like a costume or or dressing up as like, you know, alt, like femme version of me or hippie version of me or um, I always felt like it projected a false image of who I was and kind of set people up with (laughs) wrong expectations of who I was. until literally this haircut, where I asked my hairdresser to make me look more like a they-them and less like a she-her. And yeah, I guess I've known for a while that my hair doesn't match up with how I want to show up in the world. But I've been really preoccupied with not living or showing up for other people, um, that I kind of forgot having hair that feels like me would also be nice for me (laughs) that I'd look in the mirror and see the version of myself that I picture when I'm doing my life um, and have them look at me back in the mirror and not alt Annika. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I can't really, it's it's hard to describe the feeling of joy and euphoria uh, that I experienced sitting in the hairdresser's chair while the last bits of my hair were cut. 
And I looked in the mirror and saw me as I think of myself, um, not an imposter living for other people. And I guess there have been a few moments in my life and gender journey where I found myself going, is this allowed? <laughs> um, am I allowed to do this? And I'm not sure quite how to convey the beauty and liberation of finding a God that says, why not, whenever I've asked that question of them. And I'm also not quite sure how to convey that to folks who have never had to ask permission to exist as they are in the world. But I know that when I've read stories of Jesus bucking expected conventions of what's allowed, uh, of what's possible, that I've found the same liberating thread in them as when I have when having conversations around um, whether it's possible to be queer and Christian, uh, trans and Christian, and finding the same thread in the stories. Um, Beloved, why not? Your faith has healed you. And I hope that we can be a similarly liberating community for each other that holds each other bravely in this work. And I, yeah, in my invitation to you, my question is, can we do that for one another? Um, and I want to finish with an image, but I've lost the clicker. Do you have the clicker? Could you click a couple of slides for me? Thank you. I love having power. So this is a famous painting. It's a Caravaggio. You may have seen it before. This isn't the image that I want to show you. This is. <laughs> um, and it remains striking to me every time how reconfiguring Jesus's wounds as trans wounds uh, just, just gets, gets to me every time. And I'll quickly read you the passage in John, um, which this image is depicting, or I guess um, riffing off. <laughs> now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now that last phrase, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, is the closest that John gets to recording a beatitude in his gospel. And I want to argue like the rest of the beatitudes, it functions as an invitation to solidarity, to Believe without having seen. Who gets believed and who has to show their scars to be believed? And as we think about these questions, 
I want to reflect that our community participates in many practices and rituals based around solidarity with trans people. Things like using the correct names and pronouns and being willing to be corrected when we get them wrong. And solidarity, I want to acknowledge, you know, solidarity and allyship are tricky things to pin down. Um, one of my favourite phrases is, uh, ally is a verb, not a noun. It's, a, it's something you do. It's a practice. And part of practice is that it's never done. It's never perfect. Um, it's always something we do and learn as we do it. Um, but yeah, solidarity and allyship require deep listening and opening, openness from us. Um, so yeah, thinking about the concrete ways people have shown up in solidarity in mine and Jesus' story, um, I want to hear from you in terms of solidarity. Um, and uh, I want to ask first to hear from marginalised people, if that's okay with y'all, uh, particularly trans and gender diverse folks first, if um, that's fine. Oh, that's good. I've lost the last page of my thing, so I haven't got the question written down, which is so great. Um, that's fine. Let's make it up on the spot. Uh, I want to hear, I guess, first from... Um, marginalised people, you know, trans and gender diverse, if, if there's something that's on top for you. Um, what has solidarity meant for you? Uh, what has it done when folks have shown up in the ways that you have needed um, or wanted them to? Um, and then maybe in a minute or so, I'll open it up to the rest of the floor with another question. Oh, thank you, co-pilot. Love having a co-pilot. Um, yeah, what? That's a great question. Thanks, Past Annika. Um, what are the common threads of the solidarity that you've experienced? Um, how have people shown up for you in concrete ways? Um, yeah. So Shane will be roaming around with the mic. Feel free to just pop up your hand if you have a response. Um, yeah. I'll, give you, I'll stop talking and give you a second to actually think. I felt pressure to speak even though I, my brain's not working very well. Um, I feel like what you said about like believing without seeing is a really good point. Like I feel like solidarity for me has been people like believing my experience without me having to like explain it yeah. and another thing that I really appreciate is when people like don't make assumptions and ask me about my experience like I love when people are like tell me about your gender like I'm interested in it because so many people just look at me and they're like oh I have an idea of who you are and I'm like no that's not right <laughs> um so I appreciate when people ask but then I also appreciate when people don't expect me to like explain everything and teach them everything like go away and do your own research because Google probably has more 
capacity than I do, so. <laughs> totally. The double-edged sword of curiosity. <laughs> yeah, I just want to second that, do some research, because it is really exhausting always having to educate people. And even though there's good intentions, it's like the burden always falls on us as the trans, gender diverse, non-binary people to do that. And it doesn't need to be like that because there is such good education out there. So, like, maybe, I guess for me, one of the more concrete ways that people have just really been standing in solidarity is, like, they want to they support me and they kind of go, okay, what can I, what can I learn myself? What can I go, and, go off and learn from good, solid resources that I can find easily on the internet? There's some great education out there. And then they go, okay, what do I need to sort of clarify with, I guess, Tian and for their sort of get that lens of, because, I mean, being transgender diverse is such a big umbrella. There's so many different experiences. Like, there's not just one experience. So, like, they might be like, oh, I did all this learning and I just wanted to say, like, I'm really putting in the effort, but... I just want to clarify, like, in your experience, how can I, like, adjust this to support you individually? Because I know it's different for everyone. Like, that is an amazing thing for someone to ask of me. Like, it, every time it happens, like, I start to almost cry because it's just, like, this relief of, like, oh, I don't have to use all my energy, which is very, very limited, to, to do that. Um, I think the other real way that is a concrete way of helping is like um, in terms of you know s stepping in in scenarios where I am being misgendered or and whether that's accidentally or it's very overt um, but doing it in a way that doesn't take my voice away from me so I've been in some circumstances where things have been happening. I've been being, you know, misgendered, sometimes very overtly, like someone's just being quite malicious and they're just not wanting to treat me like a human, essentially. Um, and people have sort of stepped in and tried to speak for me rather than being like, hey, no, you need to stop what you're doing. Um, and I think that the better way that I've felt really supported is when people have in, been like, friends come up to me like, hey, if in the future I'm in a circumstance where someone's saying something that's not great or someone's misgendering you or treating you X, Y, Z, how do you want me to approach that? What can I say? What is the, what is the boundary there? Because there, there are boundaries. And I think as a marginalised community we're often quite, um, our voice is taken from us very, very regularly and we're not believed by a lot of medical people or pol politicians or religious people or like our voice is just taken. So just having that question of how do you want me to support you? And it's going to be different for each individual. So you're going to have to ask that question a lot, but um, that's a really great way to support someone. Yeah. Thanks so much. <laughs>
<laughs> this is a TED talk with Kirsty and Tian. <laughs> this is the real reason why I'm doing all this. Is just to, yeah. <laughs> oh, I just wanted to add to that in terms of I started to think about like what you're saying about pronouns. Is that I feel like I so often will tell people my pronouns and they just like hear it. It like goes in and then it goes out again, mm. and like something that I really wish people would do is like actually make a like concerted effort to learn about pronouns and like because I feel like I mean even like we're all trained in like binary pronouns and so like even I sometimes in the past have struggled with they them pronouns but like actually making an effort to like practice and like practice like how do I talk about this person or like practice like how do I see this person and like how do I like change the way that I see this person if I've like been taught to see this person as like female how can I like adjust that image in my mind and actually making effort to do that instead of just being like oh they've told me and now I'm not going to do anything about it because I feel like so often like I will explain to people and then they'll just sort of like forget yeah, yeah. but yeah just being like making an effort to like see this person and like address this person in the way that they've asked you to. Yeah, totally. I have one more thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so s sort of related little segue to start with, I really loved the, the phrase you said of who, who gets to be believed and who has to show their scars to be believed. Um, and that, oh man, that just hit me here because it's so true um, in, in so many facets of life, whether it's family situations, social situations, broader society, uh, whether it's in terms of religious communities, in terms of trying to transition medically and just the amount of barriers and the lack of education for doctors there and you can go into one doctor's office and be treated like absolute crap. And you, you, you can try and report it, but nothing really gets done about it. Um, there's a lot of barriers as a trans person and it's sort of like, they're, they're almost like, well, you have to prove to me that you're trans and then maybe I'll do something about it. But, that, but then the way they want you to prove that you're trans is often the way you're trying to transition and they're like, well, no, you can't do that until you've... Like, it's just this, it's this, this glitch, essentially, um, which is exhausting. Um, so I think in terms of that and that phrasing, the thing that pops into my head is just, like, another really great way of providing solidarity and love is to educate yourself really thoroughly when it comes to politics and the power you have as a person, what your vote can do in terms of helping to liberate the trans and gender diverse community and provide safety for them. Um, and I know that that often in the media it gets harped of like from the conservative side of, oh, you know, big bad trans people trying to hurt your children sort of thing. Um, but it's never really, there's never, it's hard to get the positive message out of, hey, we're actually humans. We just want to actually exist. Um, yeah.
So I know that, bit of a segue, uh, sorry to get into politics, but uh, yeah. children too once 100% what was that sorry we were children too once we were children too once yeah so good um thank you so much for speaking to that and um apologies for putting you on the spot a bit but I'm so here for the Tian and Percy TED talk <laughs> yeah thank you uh, we see you and we love you um we don't have loads of time but so maybe I'll, I'll invite you to do this as a reflective practice at your table. What practices or actions of solidarity have come up for you as you've heard me talk, as you've heard other queer and gender diverse people talk? Um, what are some takeaways and, and things that you'll be wanting to try and practice um, I really love the suggestion of uh, like pronoun shifting. I know one of the things I was, um, I always advocate for is is intentionally practicing with another non-gender diverse friend um, and letting them know, hey, I'm really struggling with um, getting anarchist pronouns right. Can we make a concerted effort? And can you call me out when I'm getting it wrong? Um, because I just, oh, I want to get it right. Because um, that's the thing about pronouns. 90% of the time people use my pronouns, I'm not in the room. <laughs> uh, so it's a bit weird to talk about people in the third person when they're there. Um, but yeah, so I'll, I'll give you a couple minutes to think about um, and, and chat to the people at your table if you feel so inclined um, as, to what, as to what you can take from today as a practice. Thanks, y'all. I'll rein us back in. Um, I'd love to hear what everyone had to say, um, but just in the interest of time. Um, I'm always happy to talk more about this stuff too. If you are looking for resources, if you're looking for more info, yeah, hit me up. I'm happy to talk. Um, Shane, did you want to run us through? Yeah, I, I just had like, we, yeah, we... We're going to do like a big group discussion here, but yeah, because of time, it's going to be a bit tight. But I just thought as a representing team ally here, one of the things I, um, I used to just have this imagination, <laughs> this imagination exercise that I used to do. Um, and I thought, like, I'm, going to, I'm going to pitch it as a uh, top writing TV show one day. Um, but I, it can be easy when pronouns aren't an issue for you to wonder why they are such a big issue. Um, one of those kind of like... Pfft, it doesn't bother me. Like, what does it matter so much? And I used to just run this imagination exercise of spending an entire week going around where with every encounter someone misgendered you. So I thought about this great TV show, like a hidden camera show, where basically we don't tell the person, um, but we train all the shopkeepers, all their family and everything. They go in to buy fruit and it's like, there you go, ma'am. Um, <laughs> enjoy, your enjoy your groceries. Uh, I'm actually, sir. Oh, so are you? <laughs> and like just basically gaslight someone for an entire week um, and, then see if, and then see if pronouns matter or not. Um, I think it's going to be a hit. Um, but I used to think about that for myself, about, about like pronouns don't matter to me because it, it's never a present issue. Um, but if, it, if I spent an entire week where every single encounter 
I had, I had to explain myself or walk away feeling not great about it, then suddenly it would really, really matter and I'd want everyone to do the work. Um, so a good imagination exercise just by yourself is just to sit and run through your week, go to work in your head, go to the shops in your head, and just imagine every single time that someone got your pronouns wrong and what that might feel like as an experience in the world. And it can be really helpful to kind of help prioritize in your brain just helping lodge like why this stuff matters for those of us who can easily feel like it's not that big a deal is it um because it, it really is yeah so that's yeah your your sure. ally exercise thank you team ally <laughs> um yeah for sure uh yeah other uh female females identified females in the room I've got that right, um, would probably be aware of how, as um, women, particularly in the, the 70s, we really had a big thing about, uh, and even now, I, I sort of cringe a little bit when people come and address a whole group of people, including 50% women, um, biologically women who identify as women, who, and then say, hey guys, well, let's do this now. Mm -hmm. So even though I'm actually one of the people you're talking about, well, do pronouns matter? And suddenly realising, well, hang on, you, you get sort of really, um, really annoyed that people will constantly assume you're something you're not. So, mm. yes. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. We all have a thank frame you. of reference or can access the imagination to, uh, to empathy, really. Um, and empathy turns out is a really vital uh, part of solidarity. Um, so yeah, thank you for adding that to our conversation. Um, we're gonna come to communion in a second, and before we do, I'd love to share with you um, the follow-up from the quote that Tamsin introduced a couple of weeks ago around the Beatitudes. Um, we have to say goodbye to our friends, which is sad. Um, but I'll read that out for us. Uh, God is God again as Jesus Christ, Sophia's child and prophet, and yes, Sophia herself, personally pitching her tent in the flesh of humanity to teach the paths of justice. The shape of the historical life of this crucified prophet, risen from the dead, reveals the shape of holy wisdom's love for the world. It is a love that enters and takes part, that revels at the feasting of outcasts in an inclusive table community. What we can say is this, Sophia God is irreversibly connected with the joy and anguish of human history in the flesh. In the power of spirit Sophia, Jesus now takes on a, a new communal identity as the risen Christ the body of all those women, men, and people who share in the transformation of the world through compassionate, delighting, and suffering love. In solidarity with his memory and empowered by the same spirit, the little flock is configured into a sacrament of the world's salvation, empowered to shape communities of freedom and solidarity. So yeah, as we come to communion today, I want to invite us to a tiny meal of a bit of cracker and juice around a shared table. 
and remind us again, and this is a little callback to last week, so if it intrigues you, feel free to listen to the podcast. I won't because the sound of your own recorded voice is horrific. Um, but yeah, this, this tiny meal reminds us again that these symbols are not holdovers of a legal contract of salvation being fulfilled, but of a generative love that makes room and makes room again for those on the margins. Uh, so the way we do communion is crack a little bit of cracker, um, take a little cracker and some juice, and we'll gather in a big circle. Um, and then when we're all ready, also you don't have to participate if you don't want to, if you don't feel like a tiny meal or um, don't feel up for it this morning, that's totally fine. You're welcome to stand in the circle, you're welcome to stay at your table, you're welcome to duck out to the loo, whatever feels right and good for you this morning is um, right and good for you, so that's welcome. Um, but yeah, if you would like to participate, feel free to grab a little bit of cracker and we'll gather again in a big circle and eat and drink together. So, off you go. <laughs> Just as we uh, come to communion, I'll read out a poem. If you're absolutely like over intake of new information, feel free to just tune out and stare out the window, um, whatever you'd like. Um, but this is a poem by uh, Ntozake Shange, um, a womanist poet, theologian extraordinaire. Uh, and it's called, We Need a God Who Bleeds Now. Again, if, if the idea of a menstruating God is appealing to you, check out last week's podcast. Um, but I'll read it out and then we can eat and drink together. We need a God who bleeds now. A God whose wounds are not some small ve male vengeance, some pitiful concession to humility, a desert swept with dry and marrow in honor of the Lord. We need a God who bleeds, spreads her lunar vulva and showers us in shades of scarlet, thick and warm like the breath of her, our mothers tearing to let us in. This place breaks open like our mothers bleeding. The planet is heaving, mourning our ignorance. The moon tugs the seas to hold her, to hold her. Embrace swelling hills, I am not wounded, I am bleeding to life. We need a God who bleeds now, whose wounds are not the end of anything. Let's eat and drink. <laughs> 